This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today is Kate Stewart. Hi, Georg. I'm Kate. For those who don't know me, I've been working at the Linux Foundation for five years and have been working in the risk group, the Chaos Project caring about what's happening in the open source metrics and software metadata, and have been pretty much involved with SPDX as well. So you may get a comment or two in that area for me as well. Awesome. Welcome, Kate. And myself, Georg Bling. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project along with Kate. I'm currently a co-lead of the governing board and participate here and there, everywhere. One of the things that we are about to spin up is the Google summer of code which by the time this episode will be released will already be in full swing with that outside of chaos i'm the director of sales at biturgia i'm the lead of the ieee sa open community advisory group and i'm instructor at brandeis for the open source technology management program that was created in cooperation with the open source initiative and today we have a very interesting conversation prepared with Justin Rutcliffe about downstream users and the metrics that downstream users of open source are looking at. Welcome, Justin. Thanks, Georg. So Justin Rutcliffe, I work at Fidelity Investments. I run their open source program office and also taking over some responsibilities for developer experience. So when we think about open source, most of the time, it's about sourcing it. And what does that mean to a regulated organization? Oftentimes, it's compliance, it's security, it's all the stuff you read in the news. So we spend a good deal of time thinking through how do we improve this? Uh, how do we get that information and that knowledge back to developers in a better way? Yeah, we'll dive into all of that today. I know you have been at Fidelity for quite some time. What's your journey been? What's your background? Yeah, so I just kicked off. 20 years, which is kind of rare in the industry. I've done a lot of different things at Fidelity. I spent a good deal of time with our business and then focused more on the central services. I was called the bureaucracy of the organization. Done end user, distributed computing. I was involved with some of our OpenStack work, which is kind of where I started doing most of the open source stuff. And then now let's call it post-struct two. I was drafted into being assigned and dedicated to kind of our open source concerns as before we had kind of been in a board type model. And volunteer firefighters are great, they're essential, but they have day jobs and that can make things complicated when it comes down to accountability. And in some ways, folks wanted a throat to choke and my name got tossed in there. And that's what I've been doing for the last three and a half years. Nothing like large organizations wanting that level of accountability, is there? <laughs> you kind of need it. I mean, it's yeah. important to have kind of a face, someone who kind of takes that ownership and that responsibility. Uh, that's the reason we've been pushing 
crossbows for the to-do group and all the assorted stuff is make it official, help give, ideally give developers the tools to make better decisions and that their decision, that it doesn't need to come down from the top. But again, they're not going to read... Yeah, they're not going to read through all the licenses or wonder, hey, this project went from Apache 2 to AGPL or SSPL. What does that mean to me? They need somebody to help them out with that. Sounds like you have a really broad job description right now, helping with all of these different concerns around open source. Just out of curiosity, are you... Are you the sole person to do this? You mentioned earlier some volunteer firefighters. What's the structure like that you work within? I am a single person OSPO. The to-do group survey, one of the reasons it's somewhat intentional though. Bureaucracies, when it comes down to large organizations, are common. And all of a sudden they can become friction. And that doesn't help developers. So what I tend to do when I can, and thus far it's been able to scale, doesn't mean it will be able to scale that way forever. But what I intend to do is to kind of build those relationships and build the network. So rather than having somebody assigned mm-hmm. and dedicated, I work through my partners. So I have partners in, in our legal organization, on general counsel. I have mm-hmm. partners in procurement and how we source third parties, whether it's paid, open source, inherently matter, cybersecurity and others. So I kind of build up the advocacy inside the organization and then also try to build a community internally for the developers where they feel comfortable, let's say, asking the basic question. When something comes up, we use Teams. So if something comes up on one of our channels, they can go give it a shot. And if they get out of their league, they know how to add me into the conversation. And that really helps to scale, but also it builds that ownership that's inside the organization that this isn't. Justin's job. It's kind of like security. Sometimes (laughs) developers might feel like, well, security is somebody else's job. Uh It's our cybersecurity. They'll tell me what's broken or what's aged or where there's a vulnerability. I don't have to think about that. And there's a level of truth there, which is the central organization or subject matter experts. They can set the policy. They can help kind of define what is good, what is marginal and what is bad. But we don't want people to go on kind of cruise control. We still want them to feel responsible, feel accountable, because there's emerging threats all the time. We've seen all the supply chain threats of the last month or two, but that's a challenge. And I want our developers, maybe not to feel like they have to have an answer to it, but to feel the ownership and the accountability to say, hey, I think we should ask questions about this and wonder, can we make this better? So given that way you've structured it, I'm imagining there's a fair amount of automation happening behind the scenes for some of the information so that you can make effective policy decisions, or is it all still funneling more manually than you'd like? There's definitely more manual than you like, but I think that just goes to the territory where we have to kind of focus on certain areas. So lots more concerns in the perimeter. So we don't sell a lot of software. Right. You use our mobile app or something like that, but we don't have a lot of distributions. So we do still have to be concerned though. So again, higher amount of focus in the perimeter lower amount of focus internally, which can be good, but can also be bad. And again, we try to get to automation where possible, but mm-hmm. it has to be something that the developers have some insight into. They feel like they're part of the decision because again, that somebody told me that this was good or this was on a blessed list or whatever the case may be. If all of a sudden their brain turns off 
that becomes a higher risk. That's been kind of some of the root causes to some of the CI attacks that we've been seeing over the last couple of months, where people just assume everything's fine because it's always been fine. And yeah. I went and ran through the left pipeline. So therefore, everything is good rather than looking at and saying, hey, something doesn't, doesn't look right here. And then asking those questions and doing some investigation. So the area where you're looking at metrics and you're looking for indicators for your policies is when it's in coming into the organization generally is what I think I've just heard. Yeah. So, so again, I mean, it's, we do host some projects and that's great, but it's not our strength. We are not looking to be a, a software engineering firm. We want to leverage other people's stuff and do that well, contributing back when we can. That's, that's again, a growth edge, but we're figuring it out. And, but most of the time we're sourcing something to reuse it. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a nice product. It could be Kubernetes. It could be Linux. Great. We're not going to be opening pull requests there often. So what we have to be able to do is say, okay, that's an awesome thing. In our commercial software, we get really clear signals around things like end of life. Mm-hmm. When should we move up to a new version? Well, when the supplier pulls the support from us. With open source, we don't. There's a whole lot of more complicated calculus that comes into play, whether it's a fork or the contributor stuff, or hey, this project went dark and then it came back. The updates, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, or, or we yeah. can do it. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's something we don't have. It's a, a lever we don't have in the commercial space. There's a whole number of different opportunities that are there. So we can't take our commercial end-of-life strategy and then just match it up to open source and say, here, let's treat Tomcat like a commercial product. It doesn't end up well. Mm-hmm. Do you do any work with looking at the software bill of materials and uh, keeping track of some of the metrics around things so, so you can you know, match it up with the MVD and the databases and so forth? How does that work for you guys? We try. So SBOMs are, are still let's say challenged in the industry. One of the, the roles of the of our OSPO is with our commercial software acquisition, whether it's a software as a service or a product that we, we install locally or in the, our cloud tenants. I work with those suppliers to say, hey, what are your controls? How are you keeping on top of this? Because we're going to give you data, whether it's inside our perimeter or outside. We're going to give you some of our content, which could be sensitive. And you're going to be responsible for protecting it. So how do we know that your controls are reasonable? And if you ask people for an SPDX, they will stare at you blankly. Cyclone DX, I mean, I'm lucky to get a spreadsheet. I think we need to expand on this for a moment because I'm not sure all of our listeners are familiar with SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials, or SPDX. Software Package Data Exchange is a file format. Well, it's a set of fields that describe software metadata about packages and products. Generally, it's been developed for conveying licensing information, but it can extend well beyond that to also convey security information like linkage to the CPEs and to the databases. It's had a fair amount of pickup and adoption in various places. However, Getting the tooling in place so that it becomes ubiquitous is obviously a challenge that we're working to address. But a software package data exchange document, it can be done in JSON, YAML, XML, a spreadsheet even is a valid SPDX document. And we've got an ecosystem that's sort of building itself up slowly and surely over time. But it is a valid software bill of materials format or SBOM format. So if you have an SPDX document, you can consider it an SBOM. So in brief, when I get a piece of software, 
you would give me the software bill of materials, which can be in the SPDX format that describes what you just gave me with regards to here are the licenses included in it and here are possible vulnerabilities that you need to be aware of. Right now, we can't actually have specific vulnerabilities, but we can put the links to the CPE, and which will link you into the National Vulnerability Database. You can look things up so people can convey Excellent. that sort of information right now. However, we're moving in the direction where we can have the CVEs at the next release. As Justin says, you know, there's various pockets of adoption in various places, and certain parts are, you know, move faster than others. Well, also, there's a culture where your bill of materials used to be the most sensitive content that you own, mm-hmm. because that reflected how you created your proprietary thing. That's a hard lesson of decades to forget. <laughs> so it's yeah. one thing if you're giving an installable, you have a distribution and you're required to provide attribution. So, okay, cool. That makes sense. And still, I have to do some arm twisting with suppliers. But oftentimes, once I talk to their lawyers, they're like, no, he's right. Let's figure this out. <laughs> Um, are you, you saying the lawyers are our allies here? They're partners well together. So, but when you think about software as a service, which every company mm-hmm. is doing more and more of because running a product is not going to be distinctive for us in, in almost all cases. So if we're consuming something on the other side of an API, well, there is no distribution in many cases, most cases. So requirements to provide attribution, mm-hmm. but not there. So now you're dealing with what's the mentality of that organization? How transparent do they want to be about the product that they're developing? And that's a much harder problem to solve because they aren't legally required to do it. So it's really on their good graces. And when I think about audit uh, compliance, we have technology certifications for risk. There's all these companies and third parties out there. I'm not aware of any that say from an integrity perspective, This is how to lint things. We have open chain, essentially, of saying, hey, here's best practices. And again, another Linux Foundation project working around supply chain quality. But when you look at security, you look at pipeline integrity, pipeline control, as we've seen with SolarWinds, this is an emerging problem, and we're still figuring it out. So how to provide that attestation in a way that's trustable. I mean, even throwing it to the Hyperledger team and saying a zero-knowledge proof. How do I assure that I, I can make sure that you're doing what is good uh-huh. without you telling me how the sausage is made? Because honestly, I, I don't care how the sausage is made. I don't want to care. I just want to know that the sausage won't kill me. Yeah, and it won't leak data that you don't want it to leak as they're doing the queries through the APIs. So I think that I really start to understand what kinds of challenges you face and what you're trying to accomplish. We've talked about the software bill of material as one tool in this. What other data points, what other metrics do you employ? Sure. So I think one of the ones that we've always kind of relied on was artifact age. Because oftentimes when we're dealing, when we're sourcing a product, we're not sourcing the source code and compiling it on site. Maybe for some stuff, but that creates its own little unique challenges around integrity. If there's a signature out there, I prefer to use that. So we're sourcing from a registry and it's going to have some copy of the artifact and all of its transitives. And that's great. What happens though when it gets old? When is it bad? And in artifact age, 
can mean something very different from a mature Java ecosystem, or we still run COBOL code, although sharing it is a little more complicated. So those artifacts, just because they may be six months old, a year old, or two years old, doesn't mean it's bad because they may be on a five-year release schedule. Now, if I took that same thing and applied it to Node in the NPM ecosystem, that thing's probably like 17 majors ahead of time. So artifact age is an indicator, good one, but applying it to each of the ecosystems is much more complicated. And again, when you start getting into the tooling and the automation, inconsistencies like that, it depends, can make that kind of automation much more complicated. So my preference, where I can do it, and GitHub is is helpful in this way because it is the Borg of version control, is contributor information. So linking, and the the challenging part, and we'll get to it later, the challenge has always been, okay, I have an artifact, a jar, an archive of NPM, or whatever the case may be. That's useful. Where is it maintained? Because if I can't make that link in an automated way, all of a sudden, understanding and collecting this type of contributor information regularly is hard. So that's one of the things that I still do manually. If someone wants me to review something, cool, we review it. We try to provide some way of some coordinates to say, hey, this is what it is, not just names because jar files. Well, that's <laughs> not very handy. But also digging, I call it soft archaeology, figuring out where it's maintained and if it's still maintained and providing some way of doing that. So fortunately, many organizations, even if they own, run their own Git, will still mirror to GitHub. And then that gives me one place. So if you are have some relationship with GitHub, I can then go out and pull some information about your contributors. And again, not say it's good or bad because the yeah. source code is fundamentally neutral. Are there signals that this is a viable work? It's a live work. People are excited about it. We're passionate about it. Is it something that's matured? Maybe plateaued? Not a bad thing, but it's kind of not getting it any more contribution. The date time function, those four or five line things in, in Node or jQuery, well, they don't really change that much. So that's okay. Or is it declining? And again, it's a signal. It's not saying this is now bad, but it's something to say, hey, take a look at this. So I tend to kind of try to almost green, yellow, and red it so everybody gets traffic light. Try to distill some contributor information into a signal that a developer can look at and say, hey, do I have a warning here? And they can dig into it and they can understand better within the, that mm-hmm. one context. What does this mean to me? Is this a community that I continue to want to invest in? Or as a developer, or as the information security officer, do I now have to maybe nudge my community, my developers, my products to a different ecosystem? So one of the challenges we sort of see is identity for software in the industry and to say, okay, yes, I really am talking about exactly this set of bits, so to speak, and then matching it up to other sources of information and metrics like the National Vulnerability Database. How easy or hard do you find that type of matching? And are you looking at the MVD as a set of risk metrics as well associated with a project, whether it's up to date as part of your signals? Yeah, I mean, so unresolved vulnerabilities on the NBD would be a bad thing. So with most CVEs, fortunately, there tends to be a, here's the fixed version. So if that doesn't exist in the CVE, that would be a bad signal. So 
I won't say that having vulnerabilities is by itself is a signal. And actually not having them could be even a bigger problem. If a project from the Apache Foundation goes to the attic, there's no one monitoring the emails, and somebody finds a security fault and sends it to the distribution list and it's like, hey, there's nobody listening. There's never going to be a CVE registry. Just the absence of vulnerabilities doesn't necessarily mean something is secure. It may mean that no one's watching. So that's where, again, getting back to that contribution data and kind of the community around it in essentially an aggregate format does help the developers to understand, okay, cool, there may be vulnerabilities, but at least my personal favorite whipping project is Jackson Databind, a critical or two or five a month. Okay. But they're also resolved that month. They tend to be closed down and fixed in a build very quickly. So I would look at it as a good thing. Yeah, you're dealing with really hard problems in a mature ecosystem that didn't really quite get the trust thing when it was written. I'm not going to blame you for it because we all have this problem today. Cool, you're acting on it. So that's a good sign. It's a healthy project. You have vulnerabilities and they're big ones, but you're fixing them. Uh, You're responding and you're responsive in general. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. It sounds like connecting this to the work in the chaos community that you're really heavily located in what our evolution working group is doing, which used to be called growth, maturity, and decline. You've used those exact words just now to describe what you're looking for, which are the metrics around just how much activity is going on in the code development, how many pull requests, merge requests, how many issues are being opened, closed, how quickly are they being resolved, how many active or new contributors are coming in and pulling those metrics. Is that a fair connection to make to the chaos metrics? Yeah, I think just the viewpoint has changed. Oftentimes with chaos, it's focused on, this is my community, and I want to know how healthy it is. So, quote unquote, the outside coming in, whereas on the downstream, very similar metrics, but I'm not looking to make the project the most amazing thing in the world. I'm looking for safety, essentially. Yeah. I'm going to advocate it's probably more into the risk side than the evolution yep. side, Georg. <laughs> But That's again, totally these are, oh. they're all the same metrics. Exactly. They're very common. It's just, let's call it a weighting that goes to the metric and what essentially means. What's the outcome that we get out of it? So the more that organizations feel comfortable about publishing this data, and GitHub does it implicitly, but making it more discoverable. And I can even see, again, we buy a lot of, of third-party software where the third-party agencies and, and software composition mm-hmm. analysis they're starting to see, okay, cool, this isn't just license, this isn't just security, but we have this overall vitality aspect that, again, there's a strong overlap to what chaos does. The outcome may be different, 
And so that's healthy and that's good because you want this kind of producer consumer dialogue going back and forth. So I think that's been absent in the past. We tend to just be free riders in the open source world and that's not healthy. We want to be able to have that healthy dialogue to say, hey, this is why it matters to us. Uh, right. The reason I'm here. It really matters. You know, maybe there's ways that, you know, you can basically help shore up this, the weak point sometimes if it's really important to you. Yep. And again, I mean, some projects may have their own bias. So some projects say, hey, I want to turn off my GitHub issue and I just want to do it through Jira because that's where our ecosystem is. And that's fine. What that does on the downstream, though, is it, it turns off this data because oftentimes it's behind a private instance. Mm-hmm. This data set for me to understand, hey, are there users of this project? <laughs> are they opening issues and are those issues being resolved? Which implicitly the source code, again, you can start connecting the dots, but it gets harder through automation. So having community managers and those project maintainers understand that it's not just data on GitHub, that people are using that data to help them make better decisions about the project, as well as how to invest financially, talent-wise. We can start nudging people in certain directions because we see a need. How much do some of the signals that the project send about like um, new releases and implicit you know, end of life when you've got a new release coming out, how much do people sort of park on one release and not move it forward? Is that what you're sort of meaning by artifact age? Yeah, again, it, it, I think with most organizations, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. People just kind of sit on stuff. And again, inside we're a large Java shop. So we deal with a lot of very mature projects. That isn't bad. Sitting on mature projects and a mature release isn't inherently risky. And I have to tell my risk team that on a regular basis. So it's really helping the teams to, because they have to budget for it. It's not like they're just going to be sitting around waiting for an email that a new build came out. And oftentimes it's going to be the transitive dependency. So the dependency problem where they may be sourcing an artifact that has plateaued and is mature, but, and then it's sourcing something that is even older because they need a development life cycle. So the stuff starts to magnify through the ecosystem and helping those kind of folks to, to say, Hey, this is a little old, not bad, but is there a more current really? And if there isn't, why? Making sure that they go back and they check, hey, did it move to the attic? Well, that's a strong signal. You got to figure out an alternative. Or has it moved on to a different repo and it gone under a different version? So rather than essentially kind of maturing inside one repo, all of a sudden you see almost like a, a fork, an evolutionary fork there. And now the project is called something different because you can't use the same name on the registry. And now you need to update your POMXML or package.json, whatever the case may be. And Teams won't necessarily know that. There could be hundreds of dependencies there. So helping give them very visible signal to look, to investigate, to question. That's, I think, a role that scales rather than trying to police millions and millions of projects and versions and to say, this is the blessed version, I just think is, is somewhat unrealistic. Does it make sense to start seeing if we can get convey information in like the built materials and so forth that says, hey, this one replaces this one? And if a project put that out for their open source package and say, hey, we expect you to update because this is replacing this, would that be type of thing be useful? So the tooling mm-hmm. needs to make it visible. One of the NPM does a great job of that. So the maintainer can flag it as essentially go someplace else. This is being deprecated. 
and it becomes visible in the build logs and people can make those decisions. So the more that data becomes visible, not in the, the nitty gritty details, I think that's the reason Dependabot, everybody loved it and Renovate as well. It basically kind of, for 80% of the situation, it just says, hey, we're going to do the thinking for you. We're going to make you aware of it. It's not going to happen magically, but we're going to present this information to you and you can make the judgment around it. Will this successfully merge? Is this directionally where the project is going? And again, getting into those larger road mapping type of things, which again, in really big projects, Spring Framework and others, there's entire teams focused on road mapping and making those end of life type signals available to consumers. But they tend to be on a web page in a wiki. So like there's a group in the SPDX project out of Japan that's basically looking at usage. And this is coming in at it from being able to signal like end of life and also mm -hmm. signal what you can do with the software. So for instance, you're allowed to use this while you're testing, but you can't take it to production and being able to convey that type of information. This is coming in from the automotive side, obviously. Yeah. But some of these types of signals are directions people want to start conveying with the bill of materials and making it sort of visible. And so I'm curious what sort of signals you think would be useful for you. I think one of the, the challenges with putting it into an artifact is it's a snapshot. So how that's maintained can be good, but it becomes that kind of key thing. We have every large organization has architecture teams that write out great architecture. They put them in a binder and get them from FedEx and everything like that. And then no one looked at them anymore. Yeah, we all so, need a machine readable. And yeah, we just, it, again, it really just comes down to how does this matter? How does this data matter in how somebody consumes something? Will it come up in a GitHub Actions Flow or a Jenkins CI? Is that really like almost a uh, built inbox? Because if it isn't, well, the uptake to me there, the data might be very nice, but if, if it's not as usable to someone who has a lot of competing priorities, they may not act on it. And again, that's where Dependabot, I think, was able to bridge some of the security stuff is it took kind of stuff that's buried out there. It didn't just say, hey, you have a whole lot of problems. But it created the changes that you then could approve to fix the problem. So as we look towards making that data as part of an artifact that is delivered, it needs to be visible in those ecosystems on consumption. So when you're consuming something, cool, this additional metadata is there. But how does that influence the CI? And making sure that those plugins for Jenkins are available, that kind of stuff, or Circle CI or fill in the blank, because... If it's something that's easily consumable and they just click the checkbox or add it to their actions flow, people will use it and they'll act on it because it's just easier than getting the auditor or bureaucrat like me showing up nine months down the road and saying, hey, you've been sitting on this thing for way too long. You now need to budget, I'm just being obnoxious, but uh, you need to budget your regular expression parsing from Apache Oro, <laughs> which stopped being maintained decades over to something that was in Java and 1.6. Get your act together. And that's real, that's real work. That's a lot of developers going, okay, and then the regular expression may not change, but all the function calls and everything like that. So helping to, again, make this stuff visible in a way that allows people to plan for it. So Justin, if I could give you a magic wand and you could wish for anything in the world from the Chaos Project, what would you like to see from the Chaos Project to support you as a downstream user of open source software? I think just reminding the project maintainers that we exist. 
they'll know it. But essentially, the things that they put out, I, I tend to class them as kind of hygiene signals. They're incredibly helpful for us. So the more that they can make that standard neutral systems, not kind of unique stuff, and come up with consensus. So working within chaos to say, hey, like the risk working group, let's have these common set of signals. And then maybe third parties, commercial partners like, like GitHub can just make that type of data available as part of their insight. But it, the project maintainers have to kind of own that this is important to other people and that we need it. Because otherwise, when it seems like a black box, we treat it like a black box. It isn't bad. We don't know it's good. And that kind of containment is not something I like to do for communities because it doesn't help us understand if a project needs help. There's very little movement that I can channel back to the dev teams to say, hey, this project is really important to us. I can look at everybody's dependencies. But from a viability perspective, it seems to be trending in a poor direction. So can we marshal financial resources or can we marshal technical talent to try to get some life back in there? And again, that, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different projects. But just that ever-present reminder that the downstream is there and does care about a lot of these type of metrics. Again, a, a subset, very risk-biased and again, selfish, but they are important to us to help us use the project, which most maintainers want to happen. Yeah, that's a really good call to action. I don't want to open another can of worms. One thing that I keep hearing from maintainers and community managers is that they would like to have more visibility also in the other direction of number of users and how much is my software project actually being used downstream. So maybe in the future, we'll come to some conclusion where we can provide that visibility in both directions. Yeah, no, I agree. And then it goes back to we kind of we start off with a bill of material. So providing that I consider to be radical transparency. We will not differentiate around the fact that we use Node or Kubernetes. If you don't, well, that's a different problem. So that's not how we're going to retain customers. It's just not our demographic. So providing that type of information, not only to those who use our services and say, oh, cool, they are actually doing a good job, but also to those who have helped us to be able to serve our customers, I think is really important. So I think a lot of, whether it's GitHub sponsors or any of those kind of mechanisms, I know that's an indirect support mechanism, mm -hmm. but being able to essentially vote for things that are important to us is an important thing. And, and I'm always trying to wrestle with my legal and compliance team on how can we improve that? So Justin, we're running up on time. And one thing I always ask is, where can people follow you online if they're interested in your work, want to get in touch with you? So social media in a regulated industry is always a fun one. You can <laughs> find me at LinkedIn because, you know, every good corporate party has that. Technically, I'm on Twitter. You're not going to see a whole lot there. I do try and be at events. So that's probably the easiest way to track me down, virtual or hopefully in person at the end of this year. So that's usually the easiest way to try to track me down. And again, if you want to find me. You can also email opensource.fidelity.com. So I monitor that mailbox. And if you have general questions, I will not be able to give you financial advice or tell you the next <laughs> YOLO stock. So I'm not going to be providing uh, GameStop recommendations, but we can talk about what we're doing in projects, why we're trying to do stuff. And again, if there's ways that we can help as the downstream, 
in specific ways. It does give me ideas that I can then bring back to the project teams to say, hey, people are asking for help. Do you have the talent and the resources to make that happen? Excellent. Thank you, Justin. So the last segment of every podcast is the value adds, where we talk about something that has brought joy or value to our life or some kind of meaning. And my pick for value adds this week is the Apple Watch. Now, I went over to the dark side and bought into the Apple ecosystem. And the nice thing, though, is with the Apple Watch, I really like how for fitness tracking, it uses three rings. One for are you standing up throughout the day? One for how much time do you spend exercising? And the third one is for how much calories do you burn? And I think it's a much better set of metrics to look at than what I had with my previous Garmin for just number of steps. Because I don't always do walking or running for my exercise. And the added bonus is that I can compete with my friends and we can encourage each other when we complete a workout or we see, hey, you haven't closed your rings today, go do something. And it creates a nice dynamic that I really enjoy for staying fit and staying healthy. Very cool. For me, I guess my pick is we just finished having a quarterly meeting with the NTI SBOM working group yesterday, although it'll be a bit back. And we're starting to see a lot of proof of concepts exercises emerging. There's been a group that's been working on exchanging software bill of materials in the medical device space. And there's new ones spinning up now for the energy sector as well as for the automotive sector. So I'm cautiously hoping that maybe we can actually have one going for the financial sector where parties in this space, maybe between the upstreams and the downstreams are consuming software bill of materials and starting to make it more regular. So put a link in there for where the SBOM information is, but we're starting to see the regulators pay attention to this now. And so maybe this will finally have the shift in the industry we like to actually improve this transparency and the metrics. Of course, Kate's talking about work. I'm going back to the fitness thing. So don't have an Apple Watch, but I do have a bike. And so my shout out is going to be for, I live in Cary, North Carolina. And one of the many imports from the New England area who got tired of snow. And we have tons of greenways. And bikers are fairly common. So usually things go pretty well. But being able to just kind of get out, I usually do it in the middle of the day before it gets to be 100 degrees and just get in the sun because it's easy just to kind of sit at your desk and tune out. And all of a sudden at the end of the day and get other things to get done. So I am thankful that I have a good greenways around me and that my bike can help me get going on them. I can second that going out during the day. I'd like to do that too during my lunch hour. Just take a walk, take a bike ride, get some sun. This is where I miss having a dog. Okay. <laughs> I've had a dog for a couple of years and I used to love to be able to do the walks. So I hear you guys. And yes, this is something I need to work on. <laughs> well, thank you, Justin, for coming on, joining us on this podcast today. Thanks for being for having me. That's been cool. I'm hoping to see more downstream folks get involved with chaos. And again, really generate that dialogue going back and forth on the producers, the maintainers, but also the consumers, helping them understand the, the kind of criticality that these projects have and how we do business. Awesome. And thank you, Kate, for joining us today as a panelist. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed the discussion. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Georg. Yeah. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. 
To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.